I'd invite you to join me in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And as you're making your way to Galatians 5, I don't know what your favorite um, family movies are or when you've got a few extra hours to relax on the couch. But uh, uh, some of the guys in church tried to take my man card away when they saw photos posted on Facebook of me watching uh, Sound of Music with my kids. But in the book, The Trap Family Singers, the Trap family falls into disfavor with the Nazis who are rising to power just before World War II. You might recall that if you've seen it or read the book. So they need to escape from their lovely home in Austria to Switzerland. As Hitler's troops closed in on Austria, the von Trapp family escaped to a church, then to a roof, and finally to the country where they climbed the mountains to freedom. And as that song uh, rings in your head from the nun, climb every mountain. Uh, But they eventually made it to America where they settled in Stowe, Vermont, not too far from uh, where I used to pastor in New Hampshire. But they became, a nationally, f- uh, became nationally famous for their musical performance. And they never lost gratitude for freedom that they enjoyed in America. You look at what it cost them for freedom. They left behind fortune, estates, and gold, and they willingly traded it all for freedom. In a similar vein, in a parallel truth to the Trapp family, Jesus has given us escape from the bondage and tyranny of sin, so why go back to bondage is basically the issue that Paul is dealing with in his epistle to the churches around Galatia. You, have to, you, you may have to give up some things that the world considers valuable to enjoy spiritual freedom now and an eternal reward in heaven, but the exchange is well worth it. To get you up to speed on where we find ourselves in Galatians chapter 5, this epistle has been labeled the Magna Carta of Christian liberty or the Christian Declaration of Independence. Paul's theme is let Christian freedom ring. Because the gospel of grace was being trampled. According to chapter 1 and verse number 7, we're told that there was another gospel and that there were some who were disturbing you, wanted to distort the gospel of Christ. In chapter 5 and verse 10, they're they're troublemakers who had introduced a, a different form of teaching than what had established the churches. They were otherwise known in chapter 5, verse 12, as agitators. It's neither circumcision or uncircumcision, but faith working through love, he says in chapter 5 and verse number 6. They they couldn't, uh, these, these agitators that brought a different gospel couldn't even interpret the law, let alone apply it. You look at the law in the Old Testament, it never saved, 
Their form of teaching sought to impose some kind of requirement on, uh, of Jewish law, like circumcision or the observance of special days, chapter 4 and verse 10, which is contrary to the gospel. And contrary to the gospel, it introduces them not to freedom but to bondage. It didn't come from Christ, he says in chapter 5 and verse 8. This persuasion did not come from Him who calls you. Beloved, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, how did you get saved? By grace, through faith. And so, as Paul talks about the issue of the Christian life, living as a Christian or sanctification, how is a Christian sanctified, matured, made like Jesus Christ? It's the same answer, by grace, through faith. So, why, if you are saved by grace through faith, do you seek to be sanctified through law? That's a disconnect that he points out in this epistle. As the apostle uh, declares in the book of Romans, chapter 8 and verse 2, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. So, serving Christ is not a matter of law and lists. The gospel of justification by faith alone is what offers freedom. Freedom from the penalty of sin... But the gospel doesn't stop there in liberating you from the penalty of your sin. It continues its process of freeing you from the power of remaining sin. When, when God saved you, did you become sinless? Did you experience sinless perfection? No. No. And we all sigh with that no. So we're being rescued from the power of remaining sin, and eventually will not will have freedom from the very presence of sin. Amen to that. Notice the tenses of salvation. It's the present tense of salvation that Paul deals with. Freedom from the power of remaining sin. That's what the text before us deals with. How do I, as a believer, face the daily struggle with sin and be victorious? I want an answer to that question, beloved. Or said differently, if I were to state it uh, uh, more theologically, what does progressive sanctification look like? How can it be achieved? If I were to review for you in ever so brief, brief a form, Galatians starts off in chapters 1 and 2 with Paul defending his apostleship. And then he spends the next two chapters developing the doctrine of justification by faith because as he deals with the present tense of salvation, he makes that connection that we are sanctified in the same vein in which we are saved. Justification and sanctification are not separated, but they are inextricably linked together. So he shows how that doctrine is applied to daily living. Justification results in sanctification. In, in other words, God does not save what He does not sanctify. The true believer seeks to show in his daily life what is declared of him in heaven. What is, 
what is salvation? What is, uh, salvation is, is a judicial declaration of being righteous. When you turn from your sin and place your faith in Christ alone, God declares you righteous, not on your own grounds, but on the grounds of another, the substitute, the Lord Jesus. And so, sanctification is beginning to practice what we are, what God already declares us to be, working out that salvation, showing a justified life, what we're becoming. In other words, the Christian displays divine fruit. And as we look at where you and I live here on planet earth and in this society and in this time, you cannot, the, 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 the unbelieving world cannot explain on a human level you or I. No unbeliever is ever going to figure you out. You're living in two worlds. You're not a citizen here. You're a citizen of another world. You've got a new love, new desires. There's a constant tension, in other words. And this is crucial. Uh, tension is a word that you ought to use when you think and explain sanctification. Attention for, on one level with believers because we've got a different worldview, but even a, uh, a tension of not being what we are, right? God declares us righteous, and, then, and yet we are not always working out that righteousness. So Paul says, in the same way that we're saved by faith, we're also empowered to be sanctified by the Spirit's work in our lives. Unlike every religion on earth, Christianity believes that a person is saved by grace apart from the works of the law. It's through faith as one cries out to God in repentant faith for mercy. Paul's appeal is that sanctification or growth in the Christian life is achieved in the same way and reliance on the same one, capital O, the same one that Christ relied on in the flesh to live a spiritually victorious life according to the spiritual resources. God's given us two resources. We looked at them a couple, a couple of Lord's days ago. What, what's God given you to work out your sanctification? He's given His Spirit and His Word. And in His Spirit and His Word, we have everything we need for life and godliness. So, Galatians is about life according to the Spirit not law or license. You know how I use that word tension? Think about it. You and I are, have two warring forces locked in mortal conflict. For the believer, you can't run like a wild, uh, run wild doing uh, only as you please. God gives you religious affections as uh, uh, Ed, Edwards, uh, six years after the Great Awakening, uh, penned religious affections. Uh, there, there's affections in regeneration. And so this, uh, this text in Galatians 5 is very instructional for believers. But even for those that do not know Christ, Galatians 5 is, is evangelistic in its appeal because it exposes 
two groups of individuals, those who only practice works of the flesh and those that experience and demonstrate fruit of the Spirit's working in their lives. Two camps, two oppositions, two families. And so they demonstrate whether a person is headed to heaven or headed to hell based on the habitual practice of life. So follow along with me in Galatians 5, and uh, we're going to take just one section beginning in verse 16 and go down to the end of the chapter. This is a whole thought, though it's a prolonged one. It'll take us a couple of weeks to, to unpack. Notice what Paul says in Galatians 5 and verse 16, but I say... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Great principle that we're going to seek to unpack today. And then he goes on to uh, uh, explain it a little bit. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in, what's your Bible say? Opposition. There's, There's our tension, right? They're in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are. So, this is the first group of people that he addresses, those that are characterized by immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, this first list Paul exposes us to, the works of the, of the flesh, are those that will not get into God's kingdom. They're, they have a different Lord, a different king, a different master of their lives. Then he contrasts that beginning in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there's no law. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And notice verse 26, as he, as he ends this section, he ends right where he began this thought in verse 16. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. He looks at the the horizontal relational issue here. So, I want you to notice with me four realities about victory over sin as you submit to the Holy Spirit. Four realities that will aid you and I who know Christ to be victorious over sin, indwelling sin in our lives. So let me urge you to jot down some, some notes to guide us through the text and to even meditate on later, uh, later this afternoon or this coming week as you prepare to do battle against principalities and powers in, in the spiritual warfare that we're engaged in. Number one, notice with me in verses 16 through 18, promised victory over sin. That's a great place to begin, and we begin there because that's how, how Paul postulates this thought, promised victory over sin. This is the freedom to live and to love as God intends us to. This is part of the hope that the gospel brings of victory as a Christian, that you do not have to live in defeat. 
Notice the principle that Paul unfolds by the inspiration and direction of the Holy Spirit. And this principle contains both a command and a contrast. So as we look at, the, at this, this promise, it's stated with command and contrast. And notice as he gives this answer, he doesn't give us a list or some convoluted formula. Follow letters A through Z and then you'll be victorious. He doesn't even refer to any external device, but the internal witness, the enabler of the Christian life. Notice what he says in this promise, Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Walk according to the Spirit. Contrary to the libertine who doesn't harness his Christian liberty, the libertine who who says there is no law, who doesn't live under the law of Christ, says everything is fine. There's no biblical parameters, but he uses this as an excuse for sin. So, contrary to the libertine and contrary to the, uh, uh, the legalist, how does the legalist try to give us victory in the Christian life? Just follow this list. They try to use the law or an externally imposed list of behaviors. Contrary to the libertine or the legalist, Paul points us to the Spirit, that we have a divine enabler. The Christian has the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit. If you were to jot down Romans 8 9, as one of your cross-references and thought here, we're told that the Christian is not in the flesh, but the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. You notice Paul's point to, to the Romans? When you were enabled to believe that you're a sinner and Christ is Savior, you were placed into Christ. You were baptized into Christ, spirit baptism. Paul's point is, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't have Christ. But if you've got the Spirit, you've got that power source, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. He says it differently in uh, his letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. Many of you remember, this is where he says your body is the, what? Temple of the Holy Spirit. You're indwelt by Him who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own. Therefore, glorify God. You know, it has, has a different in how we conduct our lives knowing that we're not our own. The divine and omnipotent power of God to please Him is given to the believer. Notice that uh, when, when Paul promises that when you walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh, this is in the present tense. It's ongoing. 
to the extent that we're obeying the Spirit's revelation of, of God's truth. It's an imperative, which means it, it's a command. It's a command of expectation from our God and Master. So, present tense speaks about this is a consistent practice. You, you, you trace that word walk through the New Testament. It's talking about our, our habit of, of life, habitual lifestyle. And when you take a walk, the way that the, the New Testament authors use that is not as if you were on a treadmill. When you walk, it connotes the idea of what? Progress. You get somewhere. Implies progress. The Christian life isn't stagnant, it's not still. There is progress in holiness. Now, we're not talking about perfect practice, but practice nonetheless. We're talking about progressive sanctification. And as we look at our lives since we've been in Christ, just because you've been on the road a long time doesn't mean you're down the road as far as you ought to be or I ought to be, but we are down the road. There has been growth. There's been progress in sanctification, progress in growth, progress in maturity. As, as one puts it, we're not, talk, we're not concentrated on the perfection of life. There is no such thing as sinless perfection, but direction. Not perfection, but direction. That's another uh, discussion for another time, how this relates as, as uh, uh, I oftentimes am, am talking with people about assurance of salvation issues. Boy, when you go through the doctrine of progressive sanctification and you look at your life and you see what work the Spirit has wrought, who gets the credit? You or Him? He does. We take credit for any of the sin and any of the baggage, but any progress in holiness, thank you, God, for working in me that which I could not work for myself. It's progress. We walk in step, as Paul puts it here. Walk in step with the Spirit as dictated in the Word of God. You are led by Him. Uh, notice verse 18. If you are led by the Spirit, how does the Spirit lead God's people? It's not the neon sign that I, we keep waiting to God to pop down from heaven. He uses His Word to direct His people. He's our tutor who teaches us the Word of God, who submits our lives to it. Paul said in another epistle, that to the Ephesians, he said to, uh, don't be drunk with wine, but what are you to do? Be filled with the Spirit. Be being filled on a perpetual, ongoing basis. And you look at how being filled with the Spirit in Paul's epistle relates to being filled with the Word. They're, in essence, the same thing. To be a Spirit-filled Christian is to be a Word-filled Christian. You're led by Him as you search the Scriptures. Let the Spirit... The drum major, as he beats out the drum and you, you, you walk in step to the drum as you respond in obedience to the commands and teachings of Scripture. So he gives the command, first of all, walk by the Spirit. And then he follows that command up with this contrast 
you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. It's interesting, uh, the, the, the Greek has some nuances that we, we can't get out of our, our English text, but uh, uh, in the Greek, it's basically not-not. I know that's not good English, but that's good Greek. It's a double negative. Uh, you will, it, the way you translate that in the English is, you will not in any way. This is the promise of God, that you follow God's way of walking in step with His Spirit as He reveals Himself on script, in the pages of Scripture, and you'll not carry out the desire of the flesh. When you sin, you're carrying out the desires of the flesh. You might say, well, it just doesn't work. But how have you applied yourself to building a biblical workout, to discipline yourself to godliness, to change your thoughts and put off, put off sinful ones and replace them with righteous ones? Because God gives us resources. He gives us His Spirit and He gives us His Word. God's Spirit, working through His Word, is His appointed remedy for sin-sick souls. He uses His Spirit and His Word to conform us to the image of Christ, Romans eight twenty nine. To be a clearer image-bearer, you don't become a better image-bearer of Christ by a winsome personality or your innate abilities or advanced degrees in theological education or motivational seminars or spiritual psychotherapy or an emphasis. You look at the different models of sanctification. You don't get there through a higher life movement. God's answer is one. It's the Holy Spirit. We need no other answer. This is the one who empowered our Lord in the wilderness. You remember the account well. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He's the one who empowered Him in the wilderness, who, who answered every temptation with what? The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. So we're at war. We weren't just at war before uh, we were Christians. Before you became a Christian, you were at war with the Lord. You were at enmity with Him, and He was at enmity with you. Now you're at war with remaining sin and Satan and ourselves. We're at war. He's given us the only weapons against sin, self, and Satan are actively yielding to the Spirit and His Word. Notice the contrasting sides in the conflict. The manifestation between the ungodly and the righteous. In verses 18 through 21, our second point is imperiled victory over sin. Imperiled victory. This is those who have no ability, either uh, in, in particular he's addressing those that are unbelievers because they, they are those that practice such things, verse, verse 21, but none of these sins are you immune to as a believer. 
You can try to step into that list uh, uh, and, uh, and, and do these sins, but then the Spirit of God, what, it's, it's like uh, I remember hearing J. Vernon McGee in Through the Bible talk about this, how that uh, as, as a Christian, it's not that you don't, you, you couldn't go out and carouse like you did as an unbeliever, but when you wake up in the morning, you hate yourself. That's a holy affection that gives you a hatred for what you used to love. So it's not that we as believers can't commit these, but we don't practice them as a way of life. They're broken by repentance. So notice the first side. Those that are characterized by a prolonged catalog of sins, that which characterizes unredeemed man in his empty, vain life without hope, without Christ in his life, sins which the law is unable to release you from. When man is left only to himself without the intervening work of the Spirit through regeneration. Notice this is a list of 15 sins. And it is a list that I don't believe is exhaustive. And the reason why I tell you that I don't think Paul's give us, given us a full catalog of sins, because notice things like these in verse 21. After he lists, da 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 da, 15 individual sins, after he ends his list, he says, and things like these. <laughs> that is his et cetera mark. This list of sins is similar to other New Testament lists of sins. Whether we find that list of sins in Romans 1 or 1 Corinthians 6. Yeah, this is, this is Paul's shorthand for I could go on indefinitely listing what the flesh is capable of apart from the indwelling empowering of the Spirit of God. There are multitudinous ways for the principle of evil, total depravity, absolute inability to manifest itself in, our, in human perversions and depravities and enmities and excesses and obsessions. Paul categorizes sin and evil according to three areas of human life. If we were to take all 15 of these vices or sins, there are three separate categories. Sex, religion, and human relationships. The flesh manifesting itself in three different ways. And some even break off from that last triplet, that, that last list, uh, or, or that last section with uh, things associated with alcohol. Some commentators suggest that these are particular sins that the churches of Galatia were, you know, as Paul made his rounds throughout the church community, the region of Galatia, things that he picked out to give some uh, application. These are works of the flesh, products of fallen human beings in their devising and conniving and manufacturing. So notice the first grouping of sins, sins of sexual immorality. He starts off with immorality, often translated in the Bible as fornication. It signifies that the first three acts have to do with loose sexual relations. 
Sexual sin is rampant. Do I even need to say that? It's, it's patently obvious to the casual observer who is not dead and not asleep that sexual sin is rampant. This word immorality, porneia, is the term from which we derive our term pornography. This is a broad term covering all forms of illicit sexual relationships, whether it be incest, premarital sex, fornication, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, prostitution. And let, be, before I go on to the, the rest of Paul's list, though I've said it, let me say it again. None of these sins are you or I immune to, as Paul says, if any man thinks he stand, take heed, lest he also fall. You know how I said that this is similar to other New Testament lists? One of those lists found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And as you look down through this catalog of sins, think about what you've been guilty of. Because as Paul rattles off his list in 1 Corinthians 6, he says such were some of you. You know, so the, the church of Jesus Christ, the transforming work of the Holy Spirit of God as He collects saints together to make the body of Christ, they are the former incestuous ones and those who practice premarital sex as a way of life and fornication and adultery and homosexuality, bestiality, prostitution, or any other sexual sin. But, specifically, in particular, since he's going to wrap up the, at the end of the list saying, if you practice this as a way of life, you're not going to see God's kingdom. He says, second of all, impurity, acatharsis. It's a word literally meaning uncleanness. It's a broad term referring to moral uncleanness. It is not just the deed, but the thought or the word. So it includes everything, thought, word, and deed. They're used together, uh, you know, immorality and impurity, Paul also uses together in Ephesians 5, verses 3 and 4. Neither, he says in Ephesians 5, is to be named among you. If you name the name of Jesus Christ, and how many people say, yeah, I'm a Christian, you look at the life, and their life is only this first list that Paul gives. This term has both medical and ceremonial connotations, so it can speak of the defilement that sexual sin brings. He says, thirdly, sensuality. Maybe your translation says debauchery. It indicates open, shameless, brazen display of these evils. There's no more, no more pangs of conscience here. It indicates that man has ceased to care what either God or man says. Let me have my sin and love it. I don't care what you've got to say. Jeremiah the prophet asks of the uh, unbridled sins of unredeemed Israel of his day in, uh, in Jeremiah 6.15. Are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No, they've got no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. What a picture he gives, uh, Jeremiah gives us there. They didn't know how to, how to feel bad about this anymore. So it speaks of the total loss of limits, a lack of restraint and decency and self-respect. Sound like our nation? 
things that people used to automatically know was wrong, and now people are flaunting it. They don't care what you or God have to say about it. And unfortunately, beloved, in the church, there are so many, so many who get tangled up in sexual sin. I can't tell you how many brothers I've spent hours and hours talking with. You know, when I was out at, uh, uh, out at uh, Grace Church, the guy who used to oversee the biblical counseling, I always got the guys with sexual sin. And it's like, is this my lot in life? You know, because this is, this is such a thing not just outside in the world. When Paul lists sexual sins, there are those within the church that get tangled up and need to learn how to put off those sins and replace them out of the glory of Christ with righteous ones. Such a loose disrespect for God's law in, and for sexual purity demonstrates not only a liberal lifestyle, but the end which will lead to the pit itself if it's not slayed by the gospel. And so, following three sexual sins, Paul gives us two religious sins, sins of idolatry. And that's the first one he mentions, idolatry. Unless you think this is for... Uh, those at the bottom of Sinai with their golden calf saying, where's our idol? How does John end his first epistle? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. John, it was John Calvin who said that the heart is a, is a factory of idols. You and I are created by God to be worshipers. And we're either worshiping the God of the Bible as He reveals Himself, or a God of our own making. You know, even Christians practice idolatry. To the extent that we are worshiping a God of our own making and not the one who reveals Himself as He is on the pages of Scripture. So, little children, guard yourself from idols. Idolatry, he mentions witchcraft. This is a translation of the word pharmakeia from which we get our term what? Pharmacy. In the ancient times, often what would aid you in your worship experience of pagan deities is drugs, so that it could put you in a trance and you could commune with these deities. And following two religious sins, Paul mentions eight societal sins, sins of animosity. This is where we're looking at the horizontal plane. How does this person relate to others created in the image of God? Well, there's hatred, which is a plural term, literally hatreds or enmities between groups. There's discord, second of all. This is the natural overflow of the first one, hatred. That word eris is unique to Paul who used it nine times to characterize the strife and discord that crept into certain churches. The New English Bible translates this term discord as a contentious temper. So there's discord. There's also, thirdly, jealousy often leads to bitterness and sometimes erupts into violence. At the very root of jealousy is ingratitude to God, is it not? 
a failure to accept one's life as a gift from God. When, when Paul writes to his young preacher in the faith, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, as he characterizes what, he says, perilous times are coming, and then he characterizes what the times are going to be like, and one of the characteristics of living in the end day is that they are unthankful. And how easy it is for you or I who name the name of Christ to allow ingratitude to creep into our lives. You know, Cindy and I were thinking about this this week. Uh, she, she's making, uh, 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 now I lose the term, uh, minimum wage, thank you. Uh, you know, like eight bucks an hour, whatever it is, before it takes its hike, maybe a couple of bucks or so. And uh, so, when the washer died this week and the truck died, I said, honey, now you've worked two weeks for free because uh, between the truck and the washer, the, but out of this forked tongue who speaks while you've worked two weeks for free, what if she wasn't making the minimum wage in the first place? That would be indebtedness to get those working again. So, it, 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 we are so prone to uh, allow this to creep into our lives, even who know Christ. So, this hatred, discord, jealousy. How about fits of wrath or outbursts of temper after the smoldering of, uh, smoldering of jealousy? You know, when, when Paul says that what characterizes unredeemed man is fits of rage, a lot of times people are wanting to uh, make an excuse for their temper, aren't they? They, they, uh, they say, well, it's just an Irish temper. Well, it's an Irishman preaching to you this morning. Uh, uh, you, you, you cannot call an outburst of temper as just a natural propensity to fly off the handle. No allowance for kingdom kids. They are to put on beatitude attitudes of life, right? They are to put on fruit of the Spirit working in their life. Fits of rage is unbecoming for one who names the name of Christ. I remember growing up, our Sunday school teacher uh, all throughout high school was known. He was a supervisor at a mill. The mill is no longer open, but uh, I worked there for a summer when I was a college student. And uh, this, our Sunday school teacher, you know what he was known for at the... Uh, at the mill was the dented up, crumpled up trash can in the office because that always bore the brunt of his fits of rage. And yet everyone knew that uh, he went to our church. That Paul says this, ought not, this is not fitting for uh, those who name the name of Christ. Fits of rage. How about selfish ambition? Selfish ambition. That's a self-aggrandizing attitude which shows its ugly face of working to get ahead at the expense of others. And that way of life was ended at the cross. Remember as, as Paul writes to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2, uh, that those who have been redeemed and, and uh, set free from their sin and their own agenda, they're told to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but in humility of mind regard one another as more important than the, other, than the others. If, if there is you and somebody else in the room, who's the most important person in the room? Oh, it's always them. It's always them. That's, that's Paul's uh, point here. We were set free from selfish ambition. 
Contrarywise, the visible church is, is full of selfish ambitions. And the more you have an unredeemed membership in the visible church, the more there's selfish ambition. There's dissensions, he says. Dissensions. It carries political overtones, suggesting a cultivation of a party spirit or exclusive elite within the church. Some might call them cliques or us for no more mentality, or to put it in the Pauline vernacular, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos. And this fractures the unity and the fellowship of the body of Christ. He says there are factions. These, these, these two uh, uh, factions and uh, dissensions happens when people quarrel over uh, issues or personalities causing hurtful divisions. When you look at what takes place in the visible churches and uh, people up at odds because uh, uh, either the… Uh, uh, and how many pastors are let go for this? You know, you, he doesn't smile enough when he wears a suit or, uh, you know, he's, he's a great Bible teacher, but it's his just a personality difference. Well, get over your personality differences, you know, this, these factions. This divisive tendency is so prevalent with, with people who walk in a way of selfish pride and envy and bickering rather than the royal road of love and forgiveness, preferring and sacrificing. Or insert in your thoughts here, 1 Corinthians 13, of what love is, how it is becoming to saints. And envy, an evil feeling or wrongful desire to possess what belongs to another. And he ends his list with two sins associated with alcohol. Drunkenness and orgies. So, with that, Paul has led us down 15 steps into the pit of depravity, showing us the ugly reality of the flesh. Only the initiation of sovereign grace and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit can rescue a person from the snare of such a life. And after this prolonged list, don't miss his operative word. In verse 21, of those who practice such things, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. These acts of the flesh symbolize spiritual death. Spiritual death. That's why a true believer, one with saving faith, one who has been saved unto good works, Ephesians 2.10, or one who's got a faith that works, James 2, cannot continue in an unbroken pattern. Though there's sins that we are capable of committing, and we recognize, but for the grace of God, go I, this list is all the unbeliever knows. They have not been set free from it. Though he might be externally moral, his sins haven't been dealt with. He hasn't confessed and repented and been covered and forgiven. There's not a holy hatred of sin, but a love for it. We're speaking of continual, habitual action, not the potholes that believers fall into from time to time, but the whole life. We're talking uninterrupted and unrepentant practices of indulging in the fleshly sins. A person who lives in, in such a consistent level of moral corruption does not give evidence of being a child of God. Where's the fruit of regeneration? They're barred from God's kingdom till they deal with their sin and hate that which they used to love. That's a gift of the Holy Spirit to be prayed for. As we evangelize our family and our friends and neighbors, we need to pray for this. 
Pray for God to give them a hatred of their... You know, as, 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 you're, you, know, as you parents, as, as we're trying to preach the gospel to our kids, that God would give them a holy hatred for that sin that they so love, cause them to turn to Christ in faith. You know, as Paul mentions this same sort of list in 1 Corinthians 6, and he says, such worry was your life, such were some of you, you practiced this unrighteousness. He says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, and I trust that's your case this morning. Father, as we end only due to time, we look forward to looking at the fruit of your Spirit working in the life of the believer next week. We look forward at uh, thinking about what it means to be taken from death and given new life in Christ. Thank you for your word, that which is living and active. Thank you for your spirit, which works in us mightily. Cause us this day and this week to be led by your spirit, to walk in step with your spirit, to be obedient to your revealed will and scripture. We'll give you all the praise for what you'll accomplish through your Spirit in our lives as we apply ourselves to sanctification. Glorify your name through it. In Christ's name, amen.